Good morning. Welcome to the 13th edition of the Panama interview series, where we discuss topics regarding foreign direct investment in Latin America and the Caribbean. Uh, we are streaming live from the capital city of the Republic of Panama. The Panama interview series is produced by Vico Legal and Compliance Consulting LLC, a Miami domiciled limited liability corporation with offices in downtown Miami and Panama City, Panama. We provide international, commercial, and transactional legal and regulatory compliance advice and related services to manufacturers and brand owners that seek to boost profit and head domestic risk through international distribution in the USA and in Latin America and the Caribbean. My name is Anthony Robinson, and I am the managing member of Beco Legal and Compliance Consulting. In this edition of the Panama Interview Series, we will discuss the findings and recommendations of the 2022 Latin American and Caribbean macroeconomic report entitled From Recovery to Renaissance, Turning Crisis into Opportunity. This report was published in April of this year by the Inter-American Development Bank, and it was authored by our distinguished guest this morning, Eduardo Cavallo. Mr. Cavallo is Principal Economist at the Research Department of the IDB in Washington, D.C. Eduardo's research interests are in the fields of international finance and macroeconomics with a focus on Latin America and the Caribbean. He has published in several academic journals and is the co-editor of several books, including Building Opportunities for Growth in a Challenging World, a 2019 IDB publication, and Saving for Development, How Latin America and the Caribbean Can Serve More, Save More and Better, a 2016 Palgrave publication. Prior to joining the IDB, Mr. Cavallo was a vice president and senior Latin American economist for Goldman Sachs in New York. Eduardo holds a PhD in public policy and a master in public policy from Harvard University and a BA in economics from the Universidad de San Andres in Buenos Aires, Argentina. We have a number of topics to cover, so we will cover the Q&A at the end. Uh, and let's jump in. Eduardo, welcome. How are you doing this morning? Good morning, Anthony. Doing very well. Thank you very much for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, thanks for taking the time to speak to us today. It's an honor to have you as our guest. Congratulations on the publishing of the 2022 Latin American and Caribbean Macroeconomic Report. Uh, I had an opportunity to also look at last year's report in preparation for this talk. Uh, how many years, for how many years has the IDB published uh, the macroeconomic report for Latin America? Yes, thank you. Let me first, Anthony, because you were e extremely generous in the in the introduction, let me clarify, I'm one of the uh, co-authors, uh, co-coordinators, as we call them, of this uh, year's uh, report. It's really a teamwork here at the research uh, department of the IDB and also involving other areas of uh, the bank. So it's really a huge team effort, and I'm proud to be part of that uh, team. We have been putting up, uh, putting out these uh, reports once a year. Uh, I guess it's we started around the global financial crisis or a few years before the global financial crisis. So we are probably uh, 10 or 15 years um, that we have been putting these reports, and we present them. We used to present them prior to to COVID. Uh, every year at the IDB's uh, annual meeting uh, to the governors of the IDB to discuss the 
uh, outlook for the region, the topics that we consider are relevant for the region, and uh, what kind of uh, reforms and policies uh, countries can implement to try to sort of upgrade the uh, economic prospects, uh, social prospects, and also address some of the challenges that countries in our region have. Perfect. Well, this year's report addresses four topics, a new post-pandemic fiscal architecture, monetary policies for the fight against inflation, risks to external accounts, and opportunities for a great transformation of labor markets. Uh, in the limited time that we have this morning, I'd like to touch on two of those topics, the risks for external accounts and the opportunities for a transformation of labor markets, because these topics are particularly relevant to the prospects of growth for the Republic of Panama, which is the focus of my practice. And in closing, we will discuss the impact of climate change on GDP growth and income inequality in Latin America and the Caribbean. Your research shows that climate change is a real threat to long-term economic well-being of Latin America and the Caribbean because the communities in our region are particularly vulnerable to the indirect effects of climate change. So let's jump into the first topic, which is the uh, risk of eternal accounts. Uh, the 2022 report explains that last year, the Latin American and Caribbean region rebounded from the single year recession of 2020, uh, which was the region's worst single year recession to grow 7% in 2021. Uh, this growth was largely due to strong performance at the global level. Uh, the, the report also states that the, uh, the analysts initially expected uh, growth for this year to return to long-term averages of about 2.5%. So how have recent macroeconomic and geopolitical events changed the forecast for this year of 2.5% growth in the Latin American and Caribbean region? So... As you said, Anthony, the region bounced back in 2021 and was expected uh, to converge to its uh, long-run uh, growth trend, which is lower than other regions, unfortunately, starting this year in 2022. Now, if there was uncertainty about how it would converge to these uh, growth uh, rates at the beginning of the years when when worries were centered on uh, possible new outbreaks of uh, COVID and uh, the normalization of monetary policies in the developed world, U.S. and other countries, you know, the uncertainty scaled up with the disruption of the war in Ukraine. Okay? So the report has a number of uh, policy recommendations aimed at enhancing the region's uh, buffers and uh, key uh, markets to speed up its recovery from uh, COVID and strengthening you know, the possibilities to navigate the current tensions uh, from the global uh, environment. The IDB is uh, ready to support uh, the region in this path as they are you know, all of the all of the recommendations that we are doing in in this report are closely aligned with a, a strategic document that we call Vision 2025 uh, on several dimensions. You know, they focus on how to speed up the overall uh, recovery. 
with the specific discussions on, you know, issues such as the reconfiguration of trade channels, promoting the recovery of labor markets with gender balance and uh, equity, and promoting a stronger recovery of uh, firms uh, in the region through stronger financial markets and easier access to uh, uh, lower to easier access to and lower cost of finance, which is always something very important for for our country. That is a net recipient of uh, um, funds uh, from the rest of of the world. We are we are a region. Uh, we are sort of net debtors. We need financing from the rest of the world. So keeping access to financial markets, uh, keeping the markets open, and the cost of finance uh, low is always an important uh, objective for the region. Uh, we're, we're about halfway or almost halfway through the year. Uh, and uh, we entered the year with, with uh, you know, expectations that we were positively recovering from COVID. But, uh, you know, we have the uh, inflation efforts uh, that have begun in, in many advanced economies. We have the war between Russia and Ukraine. You know, how have those events affected the uh, prospects for growth uh, for this year uh, and beyond? Is it, is it possible, as the uh, report suggests, that we could see less growth in, or maybe see uh, in the region recessions in 2023? OK, so, you know, the recession scenario for 2023 which we have in one of the scenarios in, in, in the macro report, is based on the assumption that there is more aggressive, let me use that word, monetary policy normalization in advanced economies than what was currently priced in by the markets as of the time of writing that, as you said, this was published in, in, in April. Basically, uh, that means more hikes in interest rates, more contractionary monetary policies to combat uh, uh, inflation than what was anticipated. I would say that thus far, the increases in interest rates that, uh, uh, that we have uh, seen have followed the market expectations. So I would argue that the more pessimistic scenario has not uh, yet uh, materialized. Still, it's early. And the one thing that we have learned from experience in our region is that shocks sometimes materialize quite unexpectedly. Uh, so we need to remain uh, alert. Fortunately, you know, the worst case scenario has not yet materialized, but uh, it's important. And that's why we put it out there to remain alert, because we know, again, from experience that if these shocks happen, they can be very costly to the region. So it's important to be uh, prepared, to be ready and to have the buffers to be able to fend off and offset uh, the negative shocks if they come. Regarding the war between Russia and Ukraine, uh, the IDB report this year instructs that the, the economic recovery in the Latin American and Caribbean region after the first year of the pandemic uh, was accompanied by an increase in commodity prices that the war in Ukraine has reinforced or, or exacerbated. Um, how are higher commodity prices affecting uh, the Latin American and Caribbean region? 
Yeah, excellent question, uh, Anthony. So the increase in the prices of uh, commodities will have uh, different effects on different countries in the region, depending on whether they are net exporters or not of the relevant uh, commodities. You know, in these types of reports, sometimes we talk about the, the region as if it was a single homogeneous entity, and clearly Latin America and the Caribbean is not. And one of the dimensions along which countries differ quite significantly is on whether they are net commodity exporters or importers. And even within the net commodity exporting countries, which kind of commodities they uh, export. So, for example, net oil exporting countries in the region will certainly benefit from the price uh, increase or sort of windfall income that is generated by the higher prices of oil that we oil and gas that we are observing since the uh, beginning of the war. But, you know, net oil importing countries, many of which are in the Caribbean region and Central America and so on, will uh, suffer uh, from that. A simple exercise of computing sort of the change in the current account balance, which is the amount of uh, absorption of uh, foreign uh, savings that countries in the region need to do, that's that, you know, the, the amount of borrowing that countries need uh, uh, to do from the rest of, of the world due to changes in the uh, price of oil and leaving everything else uh, equal shows a clear difference between oil importers and exporters in the region. Um, as usually happens with uh, changes in oil prices, nearly half of the countries uh, in the region may benefit from the windfall. This raises very important policy questions regarding how to manage those uh, oil price uh, boom. I would argue, and we argue in the report, that given the current fiscal constraints facing all countries in the region and the high level of indebtedness that we have reached given what we had to do, uh, uh, what governments had to do during the COVID to support the families and, and the economy, you know, it is worth fostering or promoting a conservative management of the oil uh, revenues in the current uh, context. This implies saving a large portion of any revenue windfall uh, to rebuild depleted fiscal uh, buffers or to apply that to reducing uh, debt levels. But of course, that's for the oil exporters. The oil importers will need to uh, find the ways to try to mitigate the impact of uh, the higher oil prices on uh, the um, economy. And this is very important because the second thing I would mention regarding this is that, uh, you know, these kind of commodity price shocks have also impacts on social indicators, which we need to keep in mind. So commodity booms trigger sort of opposing effects on poverty in the region, for example. On the one hand, as the increase in uh, prices is passed uh, through food and gas uh, retail uh, prices to inflation, poverty tends to increase because the poor households are the ones who spend a larger share of their budgets on those items. So, you know, the inflationary impact of the commodity booms is something that has negative social uh, implications. On the other hand, 
commodity booms have been sort of accompanied by an increase in the demand for low-skilled workers, and that helps to increase the earnings in the bottom tail of the income uh, distribution. In addition, as in the example we just uh, gave with countries that export uh, oil, commodity booms sometimes tend to open up fiscal space and allow government to expand transfers to the poor and spend more on energy uh, subsidies to try to offset these uh, uh, price uh, increases. So in, in the very recent past, over the last 10 years, I would say, uh, these uh, counteracting uh, effects have allowed uh, poverty rates to decline in economies that are net commodity um, exporters. Still, as the impacts are ambiguous, you know, policymakers will want to monitor this area very, very uh, carefully. Okay. Speaking more directly to risks of external accounts, uh, you know, the report instructs that during the global financial crisis of 2008 uh, and as well as in, with the COVID crisis, uh, Latin American and Caribbean countries were able to avoid sudden stops in capital flows. You know, a key question that the report poses is whether Latin American and Caribbean countries will continue to be able to have a, you know, a strong uh, fiscal balance sheet or whether uh, there will be threats in the future of sudden stops in capital flows. So what are the policies that are needed to prevent sudden stops in net capital flows going forward in the region? Perfect, uh, Anthony. So let me first, to, to answer this question, step back for a second and explain uh, what a sudden stop in capital flows uh, is, uh, because some, 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 some of the people in the audience may not be familiar with, with, with the term. So I said uh, that uh, the countries in the region on net are uh, borrowers from the rest of the world. That means that this is a region that uh, on average runs current account uh, deficits and we need to finance those current account deficits through borrowing from the rest of uh, the world, okay? Uh, if for some reason those capital inflows come to a sudden stop and it has happened in the past, that usually is something very costly and very difficult for the economies to accommodate because it is as if in your personal life, you know, I mean, all of a sudden you lose uh, your, 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 your credit card balance or, you know, all of a sudden you cannot, you cannot rely anymore on, 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 on the credit that you receive for day-to-day -day transactions. For, for the aggregate economy, it's the same. If the economy faces a sudden stop in capital inflows, it has to adjust usually very abruptly and usually in a very costly way to the restriction imposed by the lack of external financing. And in the past, when we look at the experience of Latin America and the Caribbean in the 1990s, uh, for example, or in the early 2000s, we have a plethora of examples of uh, sudden stops imposing very significant uh, damage uh, to the uh, economies. Then we had the significant shock of the global financial crisis of 2008 and 2009. And what we observe is that despite the fact that the external shock was very big, countries in Latin America and the Caribbean were able to withstand that global shock much better than the shocks of the 1990s. And when we explore why was that the case, 
we find that because countries entered the global financial crisis with much lower vulnerabilities compared to the situation in the 1990s, meaning fiscal accounts were much better, countries were not running large fiscal deficits, they were running you know, surpluses or had balanced uh, budgets, the amount of external uh, current account deficits was uh, smaller, countries had built up international reserves, and the levels of uh, dollarization, meaning foreign currency circulation in, 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 in debts in the country were much lower. So that sort of helped countries withstand the shock much, um, uh, much better. Fast forward to uh, now, and then the question is, uh, okay, we had the COVID shock, and in the COVID shock, how did countries uh, fare? So we will talk a little bit about that. I mean, the, the economic uh, uh, outcomes associated to the COVID shock were not uh, good for the region. Actually, the region uh, fared pretty badly on in terms of uh, loss of GDP and uh, financial markets. But on the external accounts, it wasn't so bad, meaning that countries that needed to could still borrow from the rest of uh, the world. There was an increase in the uh, lending from multilateral institutions like the IMF, the IDB, and so on. So countries could rely and could access external uh, financing, uh, and that prevented countries from suffering a sudden stop despite the, um, uh, uh, the COVID shock and what was going on in global financial markets. Now, when you deep, dig a little bit deeper, and this is really important, you find that another source of uh, 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 resilience for the region was the fact that, uh, you know, I mean, there was some um, offsetting, say, from the foreigners' capital flows coming from resident investors that were repatriating some of their uh, assets to, to the region. So all of those elements sort of combined to help the region on the external front deal with the COVID shock fairly well. Now, nothing of that needs to or should be taken for granted because, uh, you know, we, had, we have depleted the buffers in response to the shocks. So now the fiscal situation is much worse. The current account balance is much worse. We have higher levels of dollarization and so on. So, you know, I mean, we use the buffers to fend off. Now we need to focus on rebuilding those buffers because we need to be prepared for the next uh, shock. And that's a key critical message that we want to sort of convey in, in the macro report and, and, and something that, that, that we uh, um, uh, tell our, our, our member countries and, 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 and explain to them uh, the importance of rebuilding those buffers. The, the report uh, this year identifies key domestic indicators that determine the likelihood of sudden stops of capital flows. Uh, those would be current account and fiscal balances, uh, liability uh, from dollarization, and uh, the ability of uh, the availability of foreign reserves, which you've spoken about. I'd like to uh, sh uh, show you your slide. Uh, yes. Your from the report that uh, illustrates 
the dynamics uh, of these indicators. Um, could you walk us through this slide briefly and explain how these indicators interact? Sure. Yes, absolutely. So one way of thinking about uh, this is that, um, you know, every, every crisis is uh, sort of there's always a spark that uh, starts the, the fire, but the fire will uh, sort of the, the spark will will start really the fire if there are sort of combustible materials out there that can burn. OK, otherwise there won't be a crisis. So the way of thinking about these four indicators here, the fiscal balance, the current account balance, the amount of liability dollarization and the uh, amount of reserves, reserves being a buffer uh, rather than a, than a vulnerability uh, factor. So going in the opposing way is that, you know, uh, these are sort of the combustible uh, uh, materials. So the point we want to make in this uh, figure, in this table, illustrates uh, a point I was making uh, a, a few moments ago. If you look at the year 2007, for example, this is the year prior to the global financial crisis of 2008. And you look at the average fiscal deficit for uh, the Latin American uh, countries, that would be the last line in the first uh, uh, column. What you see there is that the current account uh, deficit was almost inexistent. So only 0.2% of uh, uh, GDP on that, uh, on that year. The current account uh, balance, the average current account balance was uh, a more significant minus 3.5%. Uh, the level of liability dollarization, meaning the amount of debts denominated in foreign currency, was 20% of GDP, and the uh, amount of international reserves was about 14% of uh, GDP. So if, if, if I were to have included other periods in history, I would be able to argue that uh, these numbers were sort of pretty good for the region. I mean, low fiscal deficits, limited current account uh, deficits, relatively uh, low levels of liability uh, dollarization respect to previous years, and uh, a significant amount of international reserves. So fast forward, and what was the situation in 2019 prior to the COVID shock? Well, the average fiscal deficit for Latin America and the Caribbean was now much higher, was uh, almost 3% of uh, GDP. So we were more vulnerable on that dimension. An offsetting factor was that the level of current account deficits was smaller, 1.3% of GDP. So we were stronger on that dimension. The level of liability dollarization was more or less the same, and the amount of international reserves was even higher than in 2007. So again, that's a positive factor. So these elements explain how the region, in a sense, was able to, um, uh, on the external front, avoid the sudden stop because, you know, on several dimensions, it was better than what it was uh, in, in 2007, with the exception of the fiscal deficits. But now fast forward to now. So if a shock were to happen now, this year or next year and so on, how would the region be in terms of the vulnerability factors? Well, the good news is on the reserves side, the, the level of international reserves, given that markets have remained open and so on, is still significantly high. But on the fiscal front in particular, 
we are much worse than what we were in 2007, in 2019, and these levels are comparable to the levels of uh, fiscal sort of imbalances that we had in periods in during the 1980s or during the 1990s. So on the fiscal on the fiscal side, there is really a red light there. Some that be concerned. On the external front, current account balances and levels of dollarization, they have deteriorated with respect to what they were in 2019, but much less than the fiscal. So really, this tries to bring to the fore that the key vulnerability factor nowadays of the elements that create sort of the combustible materials that could trigger a sudden uh, stop is uh, sort of the fiscal uh, situation. So the fiscal accounts are or maybe or could be sort of the Achilles heel of uh, uh, financial stability. And this is really an area we need to pay attention to. And we need to put all of the efforts in the direction of trying to build resilience, improve the buffers, lower fiscal deficits, lower debt levels to be able to overturn this key uh, vulnerability. I, I, I hope that was not too too long of a of an answer, but that's that's sort of the the message of this table. Perfect, perfect. Um, with respect to risks for current account financing, as uh, the Latin American and Caribbean region recovers from the COVID nineteen pandemic, uh, your analysis uh, has concluded that uh, in most of the countries in the region, a significant fraction. Uh, of the current uh, account deficit is financed by relatively stable capital flows uh, in the form of foreign direct investment. Um, but on the other hand, the report warns that the risk of uh, decreasing external financing is real, but it's, it's early yet to determine or to predict uh, how capital markets and the emerging markets will perform. So currently, where we are halfway through the year, how are emerging debt markets performing? And is there a significant risk that you see the capital flows may be interrupted uh, in the region? So the cost of financing for countries in Latin America and the Caribbean is the combination of uh, two things. Basically, what would be considered to be sort of the risk-free interest rate. So think of it as the uh, as the as the interest rate here in the United States or sort of the, 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 the cost of uh, borrowing for uh, the, the government in, in the US, the, the, the interest rate on treasury uh, bonds. So the, the, the interest rate per se and the uh, country risk spread uh, that is attached to emerging markets and to countries in, uh, in, in, in Latin America. So if you look at the spreads, the spreads have been fairly stable, meaning that uh, there hasn't been an increased uh, an increase in the uh, relative perception of risk of uh, Latin America vis-a-vis -vis, uh, other uh, uh, emerging markets or or, or 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 advanced economies. So, sort of the spreads have remained fairly stable. The problem is that the underlying rates, the rates uh, uh, here in the United States, are going up. And they are going up because of monetary policy here in the United States is turning more contractionary. So the Fed is increasing interest rate to try to fend off 
uh, inflationary pressures uh, in, in, in the United States. And the expectation is that it will continue to do so. And you're observing sort of the same phenomena in other advanced economies. So interest rates in the advanced world are going up. And that will, given that it's one of the components of the cost of financing for our countries, that will sort of uh, uh, increase the cost of financing. In the past, you know, even the uh, suspicion <laughs> that the Fed was going to tighten a monetary policy or increase interest rates was something that uh, generated a lot of uh, volatility and uh, uh, triggered this kind of sudden stops uh, uh, to the region. Whether this time something like that will happen or not, again, hinges a lot on what the region can do in terms of rebuilding the buffers that have proven to be so important for the region in withstanding this kind of shocks during the global financial crisis and during COVID. So uh, importantly, and that's why this is something very urgent, it's something that we need to work on to prepare, to get ready, and to have these resiliency factors back uh, on online as soon as we can because it's inevitable in a sense that the, the trend towards higher rates in advanced economies will continue because they are fighting off the inflationary pressures that they are having in their own economy so they need they need to do what they are doing it is our job to get ready to build resilience to avoid though that those kind of actions hurting us in terms of the incidence of uh, these, these types of shocks. Okay, let's turn to opportunities for transformation in uh, labor markets. Uh, the report instructs that in 2020, Latin America and the Caribbean suffered the most significant contraction in GDP and employment of any region advanced or developing in the world. Uh, why was the impact of COVID on GDP and employment so much worse in the Latin American and Caribbean region than in the rest of the world? Yes, uh, so Latin America and the Caribbean was one of the worst affected uh, regions uh, by the COVID uh, pandemic. You know, we, we have 8% of the global population, but we uh, suffered more than 25% of the deaths associated to uh, COVID. One thing that we learned with the benefit of uh, insight, considering what happened in the year 2020 and looking at the data of the year 2020 uh, by itself, is that there was really no trade-off between saving the economies and saving lives. In other words, countries that suffered more deaths uh, per capita also lost more in terms of uh, economic output and employment and vice uh, uh, versa. Many countries in our region uh, likely suffered unduly on the health uh, side due to weak health uh, infrastructure and the patchy enforcement of uh, lockdowns. And on the economic side, due to you know, the initial conditions such as low growth and fiscal constraints, which uh, uh, then led to relatively small uh, fiscal packages, high levels of uh, labor informality, and insufficient connectivity to work uh, at home. Of course, some countries suffered more than others. 
tourism countries were particularly hard hit in terms of uh, economic output, and some countries were particularly hard hit by the vi by the virus by the virus, such as, for example, Brazil, Chile, Colombia, Mexico had a lot of uh, death. Uh, unfortunately, Panama as 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 well. No. An achievement, if you will, for uh, this uh, crisis uh, was that several countries implemented uh, significant fiscal packages in response to the shock, um, including what we economists call above and below the line uh, items. But that's uh, secondary. The point is that if you look at the region as a whole, the average package, the average fiscal package in 2020 um, for the region was about 485 billion US dollars or 8.5% of GDP. Now that headline, headline number um, seems uh, contradictory with my statement before that uh, you know the, the, the amount of uh, support that was given was not uh, very big because the number is very large, but you need to realize that that average figure that I gave you is heavily influenced by three countries, Brazil, Chile, and Peru, that were able to implement a very large uh, fiscal packages. Instead, more than one third of the 26 IDB borrowing member countries had much more limited packages or could implement much more limited packages of 3% of GDP or less during uh, the COVID. To put these numbers in perspective, because 8.5, 3%, I mean, they could seem, you know, a, a, a little bit abstract. Uh, you know, the, the average package in advanced economies during COVID was close to 20% of uh, GDP. So in the end, what these numbers suggest is that most countries in our region did as much as they could in terms of uh, the fiscal stimulus, the support they could give to um, economies and uh, families during the pandemic, but really very few countries had space to do something uh, big in a way or implement large packages in a way that would have uh, sort of reduced the economic damage of uh, the uh, pandemic. On the employment side, the COVID crisis uh, led to a significant contraction in the labor force uh, participation rates, a dramatic rise in the closure of uh, micro and small uh, enterprises, and um, you know, a remarkable uh, reduction in informal employment that in the past was sort of a, 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 an escape valve, a valve that countries could, could, could use in, in periods of recession. Here, given the lockdowns and so on, uh, there wasn't really any opportunities for the informal uh, employment to, to play any buffering uh, um, uh, role. And given that, you know, informal markets are so big in, in the region, this uh, explains why Latin America and the Caribbean countries suffered so much also in terms of um, employment. So a big shock, a pandemic, you know, something that wasn't expected and so on a very limited ability to uh, respond to uh, the, the crisis in terms of offsetting fiscal stimulus and, and, and so on, and some deficiencies in terms of the health infrastructure and the patchy enforcement of lockdowns that were uh, bad in terms of uh, 
um, what uh, what they meant for 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 the region. So I think those are the factors that explain why the region was hit so hard by this uh, pandemic. Very interesting. Uh, the insights about uh, labor informality. The report states that uh, 58 percent of the workforce in the region um, is informal, compared to 15 percent uh, in the USA. I mean, why is informal the informal work? for such a large percentage of the economies uh, in the region? Yeah, so we have uh, some uh, structural deficiencies in uh, labor markets in Latin America that uh, explain uh, uh, or are behind the high levels of labor informality that we uh, observe. And something that is sometimes not uh, very well uh, appreciated or entirely uh, understood is that uh, sometimes, you know, we have implemented the uh, policies with the very best intentions, trying to support and help people and so on, but with the unintended consequence of uh, increasing or worsening the problem of uh, informality. So, you know, for example, in, 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 in the region, we, uh, you know, What's one problem with informality? One problem with informality is that people that work in the informal sector do not have access to, um, you know, uh, health benefits and uh, pension benefits because those are somehow bundled with uh, the uh, formality status in the uh, job market. So given that so many people ha don't have that kind of uh, protection, governments with very well in, with very good intention have uh, tried to provide uh, benefits uh, to uh, uh, those people or transfers to those people to compensate for the fact that they do not have access to those um, uh, uh, packages of, of, of support that are associated with working formally. Now the unintended consequence of doing that is that providing those transfers based on the condition that you do not have a formal job, is like giving you a subsidy to remain informal. It's a sort of lowering the cost of uh, informality. So one thing that we are proposing, for example, countries to consider is to rethink the kind of support that you give to try to generate incentives towards formality rather than to subsidize informality. So for example, in the, in the macroeconomic report, we talk about this uh, negative income tax, okay? What is the negative income tax? For those of you who are from the US uh, or, 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 or follow issues in the US, you may have heard about the earned income tax credit, the EITC, okay? Well, the, the idea of the negative income tax is, uh, is based on that uh, concept. And the idea is that you provide a credit, a tax credit, um, for working formally, okay? And the tax credit does not uh, disappear if you work uh, more uh, uh, formally, sort of it's uh, phasing out as you make more and more income. But it's always more convenient for you to work uh, uh, formally than to work informally because it's not that if you work formally, you lose the credit. No, you get the credit and then as you make more money, the, the, the credit is phasing out, but you will always want to work that extra hour because uh, the, the, the compensation of working that extra hour will be higher. Well, 
that very basic principle provides sort of an avenue or a route through which you can subsidize formality rather than subsidize informality and would be a way of uh, helping the formalization of uh, the labor market. So we need to address some of the problems that have uh, sort of perpetuated the problem of informality in our labor markets, because then and probably uh, you, you will ask me about this, you know, informality is also very much intertwined with uh, the um, uh, tax evasion. You know, another problem of informality now, not for the informals themselves, but yes, for the economy, is that to the extent that you work in the informal sector or the transactions are informal and so on, you know, those kind of activities are associated with tax evasion, income tax, transaction tax, and so on. So the government cannot raise revenues from informal uh, activities, and that sort of uh, generates a negative feedback loop in terms of the fiscal uh, uh, solvency or the fiscal space for, uh, for countries. So, you know, informality is also a problem in relation to the fiscal uh, uh, frameworks and the fiscal soundness of, of the countries. So if, we need to, if we want to fight tax evasion, we also need to fight informality. With the time we have left, I'd like to turn to climate change, a very important topic. Uh, and you've done some important research on the, uh, the topic of indirect effects of climate change on GDP growth and income inequality in the region. Uh, first, your research indicates uh, that, uh, or establishes that the frequency of natural disasters seems to be rising and there seems to be a connection there uh, with climate change. I wanna show you uh, if I may, one of your slides, which illustrates this effect. Could you please quickly walk us through this slide? Yeah, so this is the total number of disasters uh, by uh, region, and it combines both the so-called hydrometeorological uh, uh, episodes, things such as uh, storms, uh, floods, um, um, uh, uh, and, and, and hurricanes, and so on, and the geological uh, episodes, which are um, uh, earthquakes. So what we see is sort of an aggregate trend over time in terms of an increase in the number of these types of events per country over the decades. Okay, so um, if you take the case of uh, Latin America and the Caribbean, you know, each country on average in the 1970s was uh, suffering about five of these events uh, uh, per year. And now, uh, over the decade, sorry, and now each country suffers about 12 on, on, on average, given the most recent data. And all of the regions, more or less, show this trend. I mean, if you were to disaggregate this, and we have done it as well between the events that are more closely linked to, or episodes that are more closely linked to climate change, such as the hydrometeorological events and those that are not, associated to climate change, which are basically the earthquakes, you would see that the, what drives this, uh, um, uh, this, this increase is precisely the hydrometeorological events. I mean, those events that are becoming more frequent and more intense given climate change patterns. Uh, the next slide I'd like for you to talk to speaks to the point that indirect effects of natural disasters uh, is a strong uh, and persistent 
negative impact on economic growth, uh, which is manifested in, in GDP levels. Could you speak to this slide? Yes, absolutely. Well, this slide in particular is also the frequency of uh, hurricanes that you observe in what is called the Caribbean Basin, which includes the Caribbean islands and also the Central American and continental countries that have a coast facing the Caribbean. And you see, you know, as, as I was explaining in the, in the previous slide, you see sort of this increasing trend of more and more of these hurricanes affecting the Caribbean Basin. If you go to the next slide, is uh, the one that um, uh, you, you were alluding to. So what we have done here is look at the history of, uh, you know, the incidence of these types of uh, shocks on GDP. And, you know, we group them together. We uh, put the start of the episode at time uh, zero, and we look at the evolution of uh, GDP before and after the incidence of uh, these types of uh, shocks. And what we find is that on average, output falls by about 2.2 percentage points of uh, GDP after each one of these uh, episodes. And importantly, even though there's always a recovery uh, following this kind of uh, shocks, because you know there is destruction and then there is a recovery, on average, the extent of the recovery is not enough to make up for what is lost. So it's kind of, there is a decrease in uh, GDP and then there is recovery, but the recovery is not enough to offset all of uh, the losses. And you see it very clearly in this figure in particular, when you look at GDP growth, you see it collapses during the year of the shock, then it recovers. But look at the average growth rate, which is the dashed line after the uh, uh, T0. Uh, the average growth rate uh, after the disaster is more or less the same level and even a little bit below the average growth rate prior to the disaster. So what, what, we, wanna, what, what we wanna highlight from this is that sort of at the aggregate economic level, this is where people talk about this indirect effect, at the aggregate economic level, these kind of uh, disasters, these kind of shocks have a negative implication for uh, the economy that is quite significant at the macroeconomic level. Then there are the microeconomic impacts, which is basically the impacts on the poor and on inequality. And, 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 and those are not observed here. This is just the, the macroeconomic uh, impacts. Uh, so the uh, this segues into the inequalities uh, that the natural disasters are creating in the region, and uh, your research shows that the communities in the region that are impoverished are more vulnerable to climate change than non-impoverished communities. Could you speak to that dynamic? Yes, because the uh, impoverished communities are usually also located. Uh, there's a couple of reasons. No, one is uh, usually they are uh, located uh, or they uh, live in areas or sort of lower plain areas that are uh, sort of more uh, at risk given some of these uh, disasters. So the placement is a, a one one factor that increases their vulnerabilities. Usually their dwellings are much more uh, basic and less uh, sort of uh, um, uh, 
capable of uh, resisting the speeds of uh, winds and the damage that may be generated by um, these uh, types of disasters. And third, you know, uh, low-income population, poor people usually have much less uh, resources, much less savings to be able to uh, afford, uh, you know, the cost of, uh, you know, losing a, a, a job of the, or dealing with with, 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 with somebody that got hurt in, 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 their, in, in their household or, or things like that. So, you know, the poor, uh, uh, the people, the people, the most vulnerable people uh, tend to be affected disproportionately more by these types of shocks. So that's why every time there is one of these shocks in the aftermath, you tend to see that the impact is, uh, uh, you know, uh, bad in terms of uh, uh, increases in the level of poverty or increases in the level of uh, inequality. And what are the uh, policies uh, that are necessary to remediate this dynamic? You speak in your research about preparedness policies compared to recovery policies. Uh, could you speak to that dynamic? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, we need good adaptation policies that help uh, people prepare and be ready to deal with this kind of uh, shocks that are becoming more frequency and in some uh, cases more um, intense. So, for example, from a public policy standpoint, everything related to improving warning systems or improving building codes uh, to prevent, you know, uh, the collapse of basic uh, uh, infrastructure and, uh, you know, uh, apartment buildings and, and, and things like that. I mean, it's something that you need to take into account into the design and the planning of the uh, public policy because dealing with the consequences of uh, it is uh, usually uh, much more uh, costly and uh, difficult. So this is sort of incorporating the risk into the planning and decision-making process such that you can sort of uh, 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 get the economies uh, uh, ready and uh, to support. And then, for example, all of what has to do with uh, the uh, investments in health infrastructure, not just the physical infrastructure such as the bridges and so on, you need to have sort of a robust uh, health infrastructure because systems, health systems, are usually stressed in the aftermath of these types of uh, shock. We had sort of an extreme example with, uh, with the pandemic. And again, I think that, you know, the poor health infrastructure we have in our region showed up as uh, an element that uh, explains why we had so much uh, suffering and, 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 and human loss. And, and in the case of uh, natural disasters, shocks are much more uh, sort of contained, focalized, and so on. It's not a global pandemic, but, you know, the health systems of the areas that are affected suffer the same kind of stress that we that we saw, and we need to be ready and prepared to respond to that, particularly in a world where, unfortunately, you know, we are seeing, again, these events being more frequent and more intense in some parts of, of the world. Well, Mr. Kowalu, uh, thank you very much for your time. The work that you're doing at the IDB is critical and very important. Uh, and we need this clarity that you're giving us 
in the region to move forward productively and positively uh, post-pandemic. Uh, we've uh, your time is valuable, so I, I chose to take these the questions that we have, and we're going to send them to you, and hopefully we can get them answered uh, offline. But I, I wanted to use this valuable time with you to to, to get all of these topics covered. Thank you so much, and uh, we appreciate your time, and uh, and uh, we'll be following you from from here in Panama. Thank you very much, and hopefully next time we can we can do this in person in in Panama. It would be a pleasure, and thank you very much, Anthony, for for the invitation, and everybody for for joining. Uh, and very happy to to take on any any questions that there might be on follow ups as needed. Perfect. Thank you. Take care. Okay. Bye bye. Bye.